My name is Prentice Powell from Oakland, California, and this poem I wrote is entitled Being a Black Man in America. Being a black man in America means being my brother's keeper. Being a black man in America means being my brother's keeper while keeping a distance from my brother because I don't trust him further than I can see him. It's believing the cops don't care about you. It's learning how not to doubt yourself because when you're born, everyone else already does. It's the love you have for your mother regardless of her flaws and dealing with your daddy issues so your son doesn't have to. Being a black man in America is a gift, a blessing. A blessing God chose for me to receive because he believes I can handle it. It's also a gamble. It's knowing every time you step outside, the world is a poker table, and whether you like it or not, your chips are all in. It is a grin you put on your face every time you feel pain just to let the world know they will not break you. Right after dropping down to your knees, praying to God, asking him to heal you because the pressure has gotten way too real, so you pop 30 pills, but it still doesn't kill you. But what will is something as simple as going to the corner store without your pistol that's tucked under your mother's floorboard. Or what will is not detaching yourself from your best friend's dangerous lifestyle because you know your loyalty won't let you. Because you know had he not been around when that incident went down, you may not be here right now. Being a black man in America is Prentice Powell knowing I could have easily been Mike Brown. Hands up in the air, screaming, don't shoot. Six bullets in your body, face down on the ground. It is to spend your days constantly finding trying ways of getting a fair swing at this game without having the umpire tell you you're out before you even step to the plate. It's to work minimum wage and be paid in Cracker Jacks as the whole world watches you with open eyes as you sift to get to the bottom of the box only to find out that there is no prize. It means that you can die with a pack of Skittles in your pocket, have your murderer acquitted, then deemed as a celebrity to participate in a boxing match against a washed up drug addict who used to rap, have people look just like you pay to see it on pay-per-view even though it won't bring your life back it means black boy black boy turn your music down play it loud if you want but that may be the last gas you ever pump being a black man in america means stay out of florida and i have a son who lives in florida it's telling your children not what they want, but what they need to hear. Being a black man in America is me telling my two boys at the age of nine and seven that they are already feared. Being a black man in America is not knowing how to swim, yet still having to keep your head above water. It's learning how to patch up your boat while teaching your children how to stay afloat. It's to refrain from saying so many things that you want to say. It's knowing when to run fast and walk slow because I know between me and you in this country, it is already a race to the grave. Being a black man in America is to literally possess everything that lacks in America. Why do you think they work so hard for us not to succeed? We are hypochondriacs of the soul who bleed when we speak. Being a black man in America is a full-time job you will never see a single penny for. There are no breaks, no time off, no benefits. It is a lifelong commitment and an early death sentence. To be a black man in America is to be a black man in America. And unless you are a black man in America, you will never understand what it's like to be a black man in America. But please, do not pity us. Envy us. We are whole pieces of broken. Some too shattered to care. And some of us, most of us, are just trying to put the pieces back together. Prentice Powell wrote this six years ago. It's been six years since Michael Brown was shot to death, but it sounds like Prentice could have written this last week. To be a black man in America, it means navigating that proverbial trap of self-directed anger and rage, the kind of rage that comes with the weight of living in a racist world that tells you what you are, many times, 
before you can discover it yourself. It means being called little man before you can walk and that men don't cry. But they do. On this episode of Truth Be Told, I'm going to take on something we don't talk a lot about. The mental health burdens of black men and the importance of getting help. Dear Truth Be Told. Dear Truth Be Told. Dear Truth Be Told, I need your help. Our question this week comes from Jonathan. He's a 43-year-old father from Detroit. Truth be told, my question is, why is therapy so taboo in the Black community, especially amongst Black men? I'm going to do things a little differently for this show. Instead of one wise one, we're going to have three. And that's because part of what makes Jonathan's question really powerful is that at least the Black men in my life rarely talk about their feelings. So I want to make space for that. We're going to hear from Ron Finley, also known as the Gangster Gardener. He's been beautifying parts of South Central L.A. for more than a decade now. I also got to hang out with Karamo. You know he goes by one name now. He's a host and author and my favorite guy from the Netflix show Queer Eye, where he's the show's resident life coach and therapist. But first, we're going to talk about naming it. You know, depression, distress, anxiety. Bakari Sellers has felt that all of his life. You know him from TV. He's the first political commentator I've ever seen who has licked his lips on national TV and can rock a full beard on CNN. He also chronicles some of his mental health challenges and his new memoir, My Vanishing Country. Hey, Bakari, congrats on your book. Thank you for having me. And I'm appreciative of this uh, Marvin Gaye, Teddy Pendergrass beard I have courtesy of Corona now. I know people can't see you, but they'll see you on CNN with it. Absolutely. Now you know you can grow a full beard. That's the thing. I love it. I love it. But this is an amazing opportunity. I I love you and your work. And um, uh, being on this show to talk about my vanishing country is definitely a thrill. Yeah. So let's talk about that a little bit. I mean, you're kind of young for a memoir. Why did you decide to write one now? You know, when I first started, I wanted to write a a political book. Um, Like many of my colleagues at CNN, I wanted to write a book about uh, growing up in the South in the age of Donald Trump, what that political dynamic meant. Um, And nobody wanted to buy it. I got turned down over 30 Mm. times for this book. Um, Oh, really? You actually wrote a book proposal and they were like, no. Uh, sample chapters, everything. But this is what's amazing. Um, Tracy Sherrod, who is over Amistad, it's a HarperCollins imprint. We ended up sitting down and talking for like two hours. And she said, well, I want you to come by uh, the headquarters and I want you to tell your story to my team. And they gave me a chance. Yeah. You know, I had a chance to spend a weekend and I just immersed myself in it. And what I was really struck by are, are a couple of different things. Of course, your legacy Also, just how honest you are. Also, you know, the universality of a black man in America, but then also the very, the distinction of being a black man from the rural South and being from South Carolina and those experiences uh, being very true to, to so many black men's experiences and one we don't often hear. I think that one of the, one of the ironies and coincidences of My Vanishing Country is when I wrote it, I didn't know when the book would be released. 
And the book is released at what seems to be a perfect time. And that's um, an interesting condemnation of our country because I think mm-hmm. any time that book would have been released or, or is released that it's somewhat evergreen. Now we're talking about healthcare disparities because of coronavirus and we're talking about mm-hmm. the death of Ahmaud Arbery. Um, mm-hmm. You know, if we fast forward three months or press rewind three months back, we'll have many of these same issues and concerns when it comes to people of color in this country. And so um, the honesty part is, is who I am. It, it's my truth. Yeah. I want to talk in particular about uh, a chapter about death and anxiety and the loss of two of your friends, Darius Jennings and Alfred McLennan. I want you to read a passage. It's chapter eight. Anxiety, a black man's superpower. Okay. I vividly remember the hot summer evening when anxiety took hold of me and never released its grip. It was June 1996, and I was 11 years old, riding my bike when my mother called me to come inside the house. It was nearly dark, but she was beckoning me because I had a telephone call. My friend Crystal was on the line. I heard her voice saying, I called to let you know Al died. Everything went quiet except for a silent inner scream. Al is dead. Our friend Alfred McLennan was called Al. He was a year ahead of me in school, an upcoming ninth grader at Orangewood Wilkinson High School. Al and I hooped together in middle school. We were not best friends, but his death changed my life. Hmm. What an age to experience death in such a real way. A fellow classmate. Yeah, you know, it was so surreal and... It's, it's weird because young people, kids, my peers, when I, when I look at them, when I look back at it, a lot of people grow up with this sense of invincibility. That's part of being young. Well, my sense of invincibility was shattered very, very young age. And so I didn't necessarily have that. And it made my anxiety grow. And, um, you know, I, I still those panic attacks and having trouble breathing, just trying to, um, because of your fear, that fear of death, that, that fear yeah. of, 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 and it's the fear of death combined with the fear of failure because it's the fear of not being able to complete and not being able to live a life of success. It's the fear of letting people down through death. And so um, it, it's, it's been difficult, but as, you know, as a child, we didn't talk about it much, but now I'm, I'm a, you know, a grown man I, um, you know, I talk about my mental health issues uh, more and um, I'm on TV and I have a beautiful wife and beautiful kids and I'm a lawyer, successful career. I'm writing a book that hopefully is a bestseller and doing all these things, but I still have issues that I have to talk to people about. And I want others to understand that my friend Charlemagne the God and I have these conversations all the time just about Mm. um, ensuring that black men in particular have an outlet and everyone has an outlet that they can breathe and let go. Yeah. That brings us to our question from our question asker this week. Uh, His name is Jonathan. He's a 43-year-old father from Detroit. Hey, Truth Be Told. I remember about a year ago when I told a friend of mine that I was going to therapy. He felt that therapy was only for weak people. No, that's not the only time I've heard that from a Black man. You know, some people feel that going to church and talking to the pastor is good enough. Some people self-medicate on alcohol or other vices. In my own experience, I felt that writing would help. And I just had to come to terms that, hey, this is not doing it. 
I actually need to talk to someone. I never had negative thoughts about therapy when I was younger because it never came up. But with my son being diagnosed with autism, um, he was diagnosed at two. And I suppressed the feelings that I had about that. When my dad died before that, and I suppressed those feelings, everything just hit me at once. It was like a low point where every night I'm crying, I'm just sitting in the dark, just contemplating the next steps of my life. So at that point, I really said to myself, I really need to talk to somebody and it has to be professional. So truth be told, my question is, why is therapy so taboo in the black community, especially amongst black men? Yeah, I, I you know, we had these weird um, draconian out of date theories and theses about what it means to be a man, particularly a black man. And they owe. They don't it don't work no more. I know. <laughs> you know, and and you know the only we, we need more therapy than just our barber. You know, and I love my barber. I, I tell everyone I was on with T D Jakes the other day and I said, you know, black men, you know, we all we all say we won't cheat on two people, our wives and our barber. I love my barber, but that's not my And only y'all missing thing. your barbers right now because they are like your guys do to talk not to. Judge us right now. This is painful for most of us, but we need more than that. And um, it's okay to to talk. And because what happens is when when you make bad decisions, it, it festers, it perpetuates, it shows itself in other forms. Our relationships are the number one form in which uh, our instability and unhealthiness mentally shows. And so, it's nothing to be ashamed of. And that's why I wrote. I mean, anxiety is a black man's superpower is what I called it because I want people to believe that you can fly with this. You can you can Mm -hmm. grapple it. You can use it to propel you into greatness. And um, there's there are a lot of pressures. I mean, there are a lot of pressures on us all, but in particularly black men. And if you look at the case of Ahmaud Arbery and you look at a black man who was jogging and he went into a house. Now, this is something that me and my wife do. It's something that white folk do all the time. You know, it's just going to look at a, at a home and then going away. But there's a certain element of this country that does not give black folk, particularly black men, the benefit of their humanity. And so those two individuals saw Ahmaud Arbery as being less than human. And my fear is that my son Stokely, who's named after Stokely Carmichael, I don't want him to grow up in a world where anybody at any particular time, whether or not it's a law enforcement officer or somebody riding on the back of the truck, uh, or, or, or somebody who, who wants to relive the images and tragedies of, of Emmett Till. I, I want yeah. my son to be able to grow up and be free and, and be able yeah. to determine his own destiny. I, I, that's all I'm asking for. Yeah. But right now that's tough. And that helps create the, these uh, issues we have with mental health as well. Yeah, because what you're talking about is like the weight of society and society's perceptions of you, along with the everyday issues that we deal with as human beings. And then as men, you being providers, you being fathers, you being like the head of households. I mean, it's a weight that our question asker, Jonathan, was talking about the feelings he had about his father passing away and not truly grieving about that, but also being a father himself and contending with some of the the issues of having an autistic son. Talking to someone outside of those who know you and love you what I'm hearing from you is like, it's a necessity. It's a must have. And to Jonathan, I don't, I hope he's listening. You know, we never know what others are going through. 
remember the song, I don't want to bore you waiting. With my troubles. troubles. There's something about your love. <laughs> yeah. And so we kind of have to escape that. Like we have to be willing to, to talk to people. Um, mm. Last year was the most difficult um, time of my life. Um, yes. it, it's some of It's actually in the afterward, which is weird because I was finishing up the book when my wife on January 7th, um, almost bled out and died. She hemorrhaged the first 36 hours of, mm. of my children's life. Their mother was in ICU. So imagine giving birth to kids and you can't, you can't touch them. Um, mm. And so it was just so, it was so hard. And then... But you contending, you having to face potentially not only the loss of your wife, but then the loss of your babies. Yeah, that, that's, wow. that was the toughest part because then... Uh, at about two months old, Sadie was diagnosed with biliary atresia, which is a very rare liver disease. Um, and she ended up on the, um, the first surgery failed, and then she ended up on the transplant list um, for 93 days. So 93 days, you're watching your, your child die and you're helpless. There's literally nothing you can do. Mm. Do you ever cry? All the time. I'm very emotional. My, my, father, I was very, my father and I, we, we both cry a lot. Um, I, think it was, I think it's because my father's seen so much. Um, from being, um, you know, from his activism kind of starting when he was 10 and the death of Emmett Till, um, you know, searching for the bodies of Goodman, Turner, and Cheney, being shot in the Orange Ring Massacre, losing so many loved ones. One of my favorite lines in the entire book is one of the lessons that my father taught me that heroes walk among us. Because I, I want people, a lot of people, especially younger black folk, don't get a chance to realize the heroes they have around them. They think, I know. They think that like yeah. they have to be an Avenger or Martin, Malcolm, or Rosa. Yeah. And I'm like, there, there's so many, especially in the South. All you got to do is go to the local mm-hmm. barbershop or go to the corner. There's somebody there who marched with King, who organized with SNCC or SCLC or CORE. And I try to write that in my book and give that little boy on the front um, cover some meaning. Mm. Hmm. So what does therapy look like for you? Well, I'm really, really busy. So therapy looks like I don't do enough of it. That's a ready admission that I make. Um, when I was younger, um, right after Al died, my parents were thoughtful enough because my anxiety was pretty rough. It wasn't anything we talked about publicly, but I was able to see somebody and talk to somebody. And now if I need somebody, I have, I have an individual I can talk to or therapist I can talk to. You know, right now with, with telepsych and telemedicine, there's really no excuse. Um, and so I just try to make sure that um, I am... I am always on top of it and never, never allowing my vices to catch me. Mm-hmm. It's okay to have vices. Just don't ever allow them to catch yeah. you. Yeah. Vices like what? Oh, uh, drinking, hanging out too much. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you just, sometimes you just get distant. My wife gets on me sometimes because I'm not an arguer. And sometimes she wants to argue. And I'm the one who's like, all right, you win. I know, what she, I, I know exactly what she's talking about. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like that with my husband. And so being communicative and never shutting down. Is, are some of the things that, that we worked through. Thank you so much, Bakari, for for being so open with us and transparent and talking a little bit about my vanishing country. I'm excited for you. Thank you. It's a blessing. Okay, so now you've named it, you're open about it, Queer Eye host Karamo says, 
taking those first steps can sometimes be the hardest, you know? Okay, so you made up your mind to do it, but now there's the process of looking up providers, seeing if you can afford it. It's a lot. Well, Karamo has been going to therapy for years now. He actually has this really great story about how, as a single father of two boys, making about $42,000 a year, he made a point to put a jar on his desk at work. He was a social worker at the time to save up for therapy. He called it his mental health jar. I would say like, well, if I'm at work and I'm going to spend, you know, an extra dollar fifty on, you know, the soda machine every day or little snack runs, how about I put that in a jar, which I ended up doing on my desk, which was my therapy jar, and said, I'm going to save the money so that I can take care of myself mentally and emotionally. And that was an important thing to do because I knew I couldn't just afford it straight out. So I had to save up. Hearing Jonathan's question, Karamo zeroed in on a couple of things, specifically how to get beyond the stigma of therapy and Jonathan coming to grips with his son being diagnosed with autism. You're supposed to go to the doctor for regular checkups to make sure you're good, to see things. But a lot of people, it's the same way in the African-American community. They go when it just has gotten so bad that they have to go. And Mm -hmm. we have to shift that mindset of saying, let's talk about taking care of our minds and bodies on a continuous basis, even when things are good or perceived to be good. Because that's when you stop to destigmatize mental health and going to see doctors. And then secondly, what he said, which was really important, is that why I'm so happy that he got the therapy is because he's dealing with a lot of grief and loss. You know, and I think people, when they think of grief and loss, they think of just death, which he experienced, but it's also the ending of a dream or the ending of what you assume should happen for your life. And when he was talking about his child, I'm sure when, you know, his child was being born, there was all these ideas of what he thought he and his child would be doing. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure that he can still do those things in a different way, but he's mourning the loss of what he thought his life was going to be. And a lot of times that happens to all of us when we have breakups, Mm -hmm. when we lose a job, when our car doesn't work, we're mourning the life that we thought we're supposed to have. And that causes mental and emotional distress on us. And people don't realize that. So you have to check in. It's not just something big happened. Someone died. Someone got shot. Something, you know, traumatic. It's also these little things that pile up that cause us to have emotional and mental challenges and turmoil in our life. And so if you can acknowledge those, you'll start to realize that having a conversation with someone who's trained will help you to get through those issues quicker and healthier because it's not just about the big thing. It's about all the things that help you to get there. And so, you know, just continue to go on your journey because not everyone is going to support you in any decision you make, in all decisions you make. But if you can be confident in the decision you're making for yourself, that's what's most important because at the end of the day, the person you came in this world with and the person you're going to go out with is it's yourself. You. So you. Yeah. <laughs> you, better, you better take care of you, okay? You better take care of you. But what you're saying is so powerful about loss because, you know, I'm a parent too. And so I can only imagine the sense of guilt, even just silently, you might feel for even thinking about the fact that you're grieving over what might have been, what society is telling you parenthood is going to look like. And when parenthood looks way yeah. different than what you thought, You love your child to death. I know Jonathan loves his son to the moon and back. But being able to talk to somebody also that is not invested in the situation about that loss is probably very important. Because, of course, you've got your family. You've got all these other people around you. But to talk to somebody who doesn't know anybody and just say, like, I'm actually feeling this way is super important. 
So important. And what you said, like having somebody who's not invested in it is really key because the reason people don't talk about these things is because they don't want to be judged. Mm-hmm. Um, and you don't want to be judged as a bad parent for having these feelings. But the truth of the matter is that we, we're we all entitled to our feelings. What, what it is is how you act upon those feelings. And by having a conversation to acknowledge your feelings and to grow through them is a healthy act. But ignoring them and then lashing out in other ways is an unhealthy act. And so you have to just check that and not be embarrassed by the grieving and the loss that you're having. Yeah. You know, another thing I heard from him, though, he was mentioning how he was bringing up therapy to his friends. And Mm -hmm. what I got from that, though, is that he is not only looking for validation, he's also looking for a sense of community. Like, what what would be your advice to that? Because, of course, he can go to therapy by himself, but he kind of wants to be aligned with people who also feel the same way he does. Well, you know, um, one of the things that I do personally and as, as someone who's, you know, a fan of church and spirituality and the community that comes with going to church is that within my church here in Los Angeles, West Angeles, um, Church of God in Christ, I actually put up a bulletin of available therapists and so that people and, and numbers that people can go to because mm-hmm. I think if people are encouraging you to go to a space to say, oh, you know what, just get to church then why not bring the therapy to the church so that there's now an outlet where people can say, oh, well, I'm in church and there's something that says I can still go to therapy. Well, I'm not going against what my community has taught me and what I've been trained to feel is a way of dealing with my trauma. I can still do it. And I think within that, you can find community. You can find people to support you. You can also go online. You know, there's so many people There's African-American support groups. There's all these things that you can go to that will help you and support you. Community is important because we never want to feel alone in our our emotions and our challenges. You know, we want to feel like somebody else understands. And that's important. I have a younger brother, and I'm going to say like 20 years ago, um, because I love black men, I want to tell you this. Like my brothers, Mm -hmm. I just love, there's just something like, oh, I just... Anyway, I had like this. Amen, sister. I'm with you. I know. I told my brother, I said, gather all your friends and I I just want to talk to you guys. And so we all met like in my little apartment back then and their feelings were right at the surface. I said, I just want to gather you guys here to ask, how are you doing? And we ended up talking for like five hours. But I remember at the Mm -hmm. end when I brought up therapy, there was sort of like this bulk at it. And I was thinking, this is what we've just been doing for the last five hours, like group therapy. Yeah. So the need is there. You know, one of the guys said to me, you asked me how I'm doing. No one has ever asked me that, really, like you asked me. And I thought, wow, like mm-hmm. that was very much needed. So how do you even get to that point where you can crack that code? Well, it's you're so right about the toxic masculinity that comes, and it, it it's really perpetuated within communities of colors. And that's because, you know, we there's this legacy of, you know, men have to be a certain way to show strength to take care of the family. Again, not to go back to slavery, but when you have, you yeah. know, people tearing your family apart, you know, someone has to step up and say, no, I'm standing up for my family. And these sort of things that challenge what people assume masculinity is, you know, have just gotten shut down over the years and sort of been in, ingrained in us that it's wrong. So I think it's the same thing we talked about with therapy before is that if it's never talked about in your household, you have to start addressing it from early on. And being the youngest of four sisters, older sisters, and a mother, you know, one of the things that I've talked to my sisters about, and this is not to put all the pressure on black women, 
by any means, because y'all got enough stuff on y'all shoulders y'all got to deal with, let's be real. But I think that having a conversation to say, how are we checking in and how are we communicating with our young black boys and our black men? Mm. And, you know, things of like, you ain't no man, Mm. you know, like, how many girlfriends you got? You know, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking I got none because I'm gay. But, you know, I'm like, I'm talking about I'm five years old. Why would I even be thinking about girls? You should be telling me how many books you read. Mm-hmm. But you just have to play along with this idea of like, yeah, having a lot of women, it makes me sort more masculine or makes me more attractive. Mm-hmm. And I think that we need to check in with ourselves about like, what are those subliminal messages that we're passing on to little black boys? Because those little black boys turn into black men and what they've learned and been trained as children is how they're going to react as adults. So, you know, if you laugh it off when he says he got six girlfriends, don't be surprised when he's 26 and still has six girlfriends Mm -hmm. and thinks that it's okay. Because you just now told him that not respecting women and not respecting his own emotions and not respecting the sanctity of, you know, being honest and communicating honestly, you've taught him that from younger when you were like, oh, you got a couple of girls? Ha ha ha, that's great. Now you're mad because he has a couple of girls and you're one of them. And, you know, your daughter's one of them. Like, so we have to check in with that. And I think that's the first step. But then secondly, as we get older, what you did is so key of creating spaces. You know, it it might not happen in large, you know, groups always. But, you know, have a day where you invite your man and one of his friends over and allow the conversation to start organically. Mm -hmm. And if you see that they're having pushback, don't push them because it'll only make them retreat more. Just say, all right, we'll come back another day and we'll we'll push a little bit more then. We'll push a little bit more then. It's a journey for people to get more comfortable because you have to remember, if I've spent 20 years living in this toxic mentality, I'm not going to get over it in a day. Mm-hmm. And so you got to be patient with people and just help them to see that, yes, you can start figuring out your emotions. I'll leave you with this last little thing. On Queer Eye, I'm the guy who always gets the tears out of people. People always have their emotional breakthroughs with me because I'm going deeper with them. And I always tell people, they're like, is it hard to get people to cry? And I'm like, well, first of all, that's not the goal is to make people cry. But it's just a, you know, you know, so I'm not going in there like cry, cry. But, you know, it's one of those things where it's like you're having a release. But I tell people that it's easier for men to cry on camera than it is for women. And what I realized through my work Mm. is that because men, like you said, have never been asked these questions mm-hmm. and have never been given a space just to communicate, that it's all bubbling on the surface, that it just comes pouring out. Mm-hmm. Where women, historically or traditionally, have been given that space. So when I'm on camera with them, they're more in self-reflection mode. They're like, oh, yeah, let me think about my mm-hmm. past and how this made me feel and when this was going on. Men don't do that often. So, of course, when you ask them, it bubbles over. In unhealthy environments, it bubbles over to anger. Mm. And so you have to understand that when someone is being angry, what that is is that they just don't have the language to communicate what they're feeling. So therefore, they just lash out, they punch, they hit. And so you can combat that by organically dropping seeds of planting emotional language in men so that they understand how to communicate versus getting angry. And I mean, this is something simple people can do in their lives. You know, give a man a new word of like healthy. I mean, just just say that around them and start saying like, oh, do you feel healthy today? Mm. I mean, I know it sounds crazy, but like the thing is, is like most people say, how you feel? 
The answer is going to be, I feel fine. If you specifically say, do you feel healthy? You're giving them new emotional language to talk about what they're going through and what they're experiencing in a way that they've never been asked. And it will challenge them organically without pressuring them. And these type of things is that people can do all the time. I do it with my sons. I got two sons and all the time. And they are so emotionally open and they don't even realize it's because I do stuff like that. I don't walk in the house and say, "Um, so school was good today? I say, you know, what was the moment that challenged you the most today? Yeah, yeah. It's a whole different conversation versus was school good today? Yeah, I've, I've started doing this thing where I say, what can I do to support you? Or how can I support you? And it, it really Ugh. flips the, it flips Boom. It. That's a good one. Karamo, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, boo. Always, I will come on your show a million and one time. My name is Ron Finley, and I'm the Gangster Gardener. If you're on Instagram or Facebook, I am sure you have seen the ads for Ron's masterclass. He is a master gardener and famous for turning parkways in South Central Los Angeles into these beautiful flower and food gardens. And he teaches little black and brown boys and girls the power and seduction of the soil. It is total therapy. Basically, like you said, it's seduction. And what Ron means by that is that there is something about getting closer to Mother Nature, being in control of growing your own food for the nourishment of your mind and your soul. Ron says that's freedom. Yes, it's freedom in a sense of you're learning how to fend for yourself. You're not dependent on a system to feed you. We need to know where our food comes from. I think it's important instead of trusting where our food is coming from. We have no idea. And that's, that's to me, where the freedom part comes in. People are seeing just how important food really is and how hard, if you have a situation it is to get, you can't get to the store. Your store should be your front yard, your side yard, your backyard. Now we understand that you can't eat diamonds. You know, so what's truly, truly important in life? Here in places like South Central and places, we we must realize that these, I call them food prisons, they're by design. It's not happenstance. If you want healthy food there, they could have it there just like they have it in other neighborhoods, there's there's not a, a food shortage. There's a distribution problem that's by design. I have a simple saying, beauty in, beauty out. If you want beauty into a place, you put it there. But how did you know that this was your passion? You know, you were a fashion designer before this. When did it come to you that, like, this is what I should be doing with my life? One of the, when you asked that, I'm going to tell you what came to my head was the, I made compost, you know, for the first time. Because when I first made, made it, I thought you just put all the stuff in, in a bucket and cover it and it turns the compost. No, it rots, okay, and it stinks. And it changed my life because I'm like, okay, why is this 150 degrees? How did this, why is it steaming? Why, where is all this steam coming from? Why is it hot? And it made me realize that nothing ever dies. You know, I put these dead <laughs> leaves in here with these 
green leaves, the nitrogen and the carbon together, and bam, it turns to 150 degrees. So what's, what is dead? And it made me see that. And one of my sons said, well, that's one of the laws of, I think, Newton or some one of those guys. And he said, energy never dies. It just reconforms into something else, but it does not die. So when you think we are energy, you know, and it, and it took me, whoa. So it made me look at life itself differently. This came natural to me, but then when you begin to read and you begin to study different things, you realize that they have all of this down in books already. It's already been researched. So my thing is, okay, why don't we have gardens in every prison, in every state, in every place that there is a prison? Why don't we have a garden there? Because it is therapeutic. Why don't we have a garden in every school in the world? You know, like uh, Alice Waters with the edible schoolyard. Why isn't the edible schoolyard everywhere? They know what gardens do. They know how they change people's health. They know how they relax people touching the soil. There's all kinds of nutrients that you get. Yeah, I, I agree. It, it, it is therapy. And I've had, I have seen people change in the garden. I, I, I've literally been able to witness that. And some of the testimonies that I, that I get online um, that I've been getting for years, it's some of the things, you know, make you want to cry. Um, it, they're, they're just so heartfelt that people didn't know that we've been separated from this earth for so many years, and, and it's time for us to come back to it. That was Ron Finley, also known as the Gangster Gardener. You know, I was telling my husband what Karamo said about men crying on his show and how it happens faster because men just aren't used to being asked how they feel. And my husband reminded me that I've actually said before how uncomfortable it makes me feel to see men cry on TV, which really gets to my takeaway from this episode. I need to give more space to the men in my life to be emotionally open And so I'm going to take what Bakari and Karamo and Ron said to heart. Therapy can look traditional, going to a licensed therapist, but it can also be practiced in the day-to-day. And part of that is allowing the men in our lives to be vulnerable. What do you think? Hit me up on Twitter or Instagram or email us at truthbetold at kqed.org. You can also leave us a voicemail at 415-553-2888. That's 415-553-2802. And you can always be anonymous. Truth Be Told is produced by Susie Racho, Issa Mendoza, and Katie McMurrin. KQED's leadership team includes Erica Aguilar, Ethan Tobin Lindsay, and Holly Kernan. And a big thanks to Kiana Mogadam. Truth Be Told is a production of KQED in San Francisco. I'm Tanya Mosley.